the bear like stopped about 20 or 25 feet away and like turned around and looked at me and was looking a little bit uneasy. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Emily Pennington is the brazen backpacker. When she's not helping Hollywood producers or performing as an aerialist, you'll find her deep in the American forests or climbing mountains in Nepal. Many people dream about a life of travel and adventure, but Emily took that leap to live that dream. More than just a travel writer, she's a serious solo hiker and mountaineer who travels the world and writes about her experiences for major magazines. Today, she tells us what it takes to live a life like hers, how she trains for her adventures, and what to pack, what to read, and most importantly, how to survive encounters with wild bears. Plus, a side note, she gets bonus points for being a fan of Aldous Huxley's The Island. So if you want to become a serious adventurer, or if you just want to live that life vicariously through seasoned professionals, please enjoy this conversation with the brazen backpacker, Emily Pennington. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here with Emily Pennington of the Brazen Backpacker. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Before we get into all of the adventures you've had and places you've worked and things you've done, um, when you were a little kid, did you imagine being out here doing all this stuff that you're doing now? No, not really. You know, I um, I grew up in Texas, so I grew up in a very flat, um, humid <laughs> environment, and um, and I really. I really enjoyed it when my mom would take me on these long road trips to like Colorado or like Big Bend when I was a kid, but um, it was never, it wasn't like an all the time thing for me growing up. Um, I traveled a lot actually growing up. I, I think that knowing that I was going to travel at least a few times a year my entire life was probably more in the realm of what I was expecting for myself, but definitely not all of the mountaineering and rock climbing. What made you decide to go from Texas to Los Angeles for school? Oh yeah. Um, I actually, um, well, I used to, I've been a performer my entire life. And so I moved here to go to USC for theater. Um, and I basically just never left and stayed in the entertainment industry, um, by day. And then by night I turn into, um, like a writer and on the weekends I turn into a mountain ninja. So (laughs) it's a pretty varied life these days. Uh, Can you tell us more about the performance side of what you've been up to? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, so I um, I started as a I started as a theater performer, and I did a ton of musical theater in Texas and a bit in college as well. And um, then I did a little bit of film acting, but I didn't think it was quite as fun. And also, you don't have a lot of creative control over your work because you're basically at the whim of whatever audition happens to be in your age range on any given month. So um, I kind of jumped a little more behind the scenes and I work as an assistant to different producers now. And that's what I've been doing for the last eight years or so, I would say. And during those eight years, since I'm completely incapable of doing one thing at a time, I, um, I trained to become a professional aerialist. So I worked in the circus for like five years. Um, I worked with Lucent Dossier and I, um, 
I worked at Disneyland for a while and um, I did the LA County Fair and tons of weird corporate events. So I was basically one of those like people who gets paid to run around being strange and flying around in the air at parties and clubs and things for a really big chunk of my life, um, which is amazing and also just kills your body. And um, now uh, I'm, I've transitioned into, into a totally different thing that's amazing, but also kills your body. And that's, that's been quite the journey as well. What is, has it been like to transition into someone who's covering the outdoors and working with the outdoor industry? I think the transitions happened slowly enough where it hasn't been a crazy whirlwind. I think it's, it's, it's been measured enough for me to keep up with it. But, um, there were a couple of years where I was pretty much only doing yoga and having a day job. And then I was dating someone maybe four years ago, um, who took me backpacking for the first time, not knowing what my skill level was and not knowing that my skill level was almost zero. And, um, we had a bit of a misadventure in Sequoia National Park, but I also fell in love with it. And I was um, so excited to like wake up at five in the morning and see the sunrise and I just couldn't get enough of it. So um, I started training really hard to get my body primed for hiking lots of miles and eventually started like mountaineering and rock climbing and finding like-minded friends who um, who also like to get out in the outdoors and who want, who don't think it's crazy to drive six hours on a Friday night after work just to backpack for two days in the Sierras. Um, and then working with the outdoor industry kind of came after that. Um, once I, once I kind of cut my teeth in the outdoors and had something of substance to write about, um, that's when I felt more confident to actually pitch bigger publications and start writing for like Backpacker Magazine and, um, Outdoor Project and Mountain Life Magazine in Canada. And hopefully, a few more next year, but still kind of going back and forth with editors pitching. <laughs> and so since you write about the basics of backpacking, what would you recommend to people who wanted to get in shape like you had to learn to get in shape for outdoors uh, activities? Um, I would say if you don't want to follow like a really intense fitness plan, I would say do what I did, which is dedicate yourself to hiking 10 miles every weekend, preferably at once, preferably one big 10 mile hike. So you can start to build endurance, even if you're not moving quickly at first, I think that it's invaluable to get your body used to doing that repetitive movement, um, uphill if possible for a good chunk of it. Um, I think that that is a fun and gym free way to really like start to get your body ready. I think for people who want to actually do mountaineering, I cannot recommend the book um, Training for the New Alpinism enough. It is It was totally my Bible for all of last year. And that offers different kinds of training programs for anyone from like a casual weekend person to someone who wants to be a professional alpinist. Um, and that's a lot more involved. That I was working out, I think, 19 or 20 hours a week for a lot of last year doing like rock climbing and um, weight training, running, um, running hills, hiking like 20 miles a week. It was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, I would say start by, start, start small. Start by like running an hour a week and hiking 10 miles on the weekend. <laughs> so what was it like for you when you first started doing your true alpine work and getting away from simply going up a mountain? Oh my gosh, it's so scary because there's, I feel like there's suddenly so many variables 
to think about. And um, when you're just hiking on a trail, I think that there's a lot of engineering that a lot of hikers don't don't maybe recognize that goes into those trails to make sure that overhead rocks aren't going to fall on you, for example, or um, to make sure that the the ground just below the trail or just to the side of the trail isn't going to crumble. Um, the a lot of times I think the trails are kind of like tamped down. Um, so when you're out in the alpine, there's none of that, and so you're on loose rocks, and there are totally overhead hazards that can just crash into you at any moment. So you have to be paying attention and your ears have to be really open the entire time. And um, I would say that the main, the main difference between the two was, yeah, was just the, the fear of the unknown and knowing that even if you have a friend who, who gave you beta on how to do a climb, um, it could totally change from week to week. There could have been a rock slide or an avalanche or or something like that. So um, really trying to educate myself in a more bookish way was surprisingly important um, when I started doing more mountaineering. Wow. So it's really such a problem-solving activity. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I feel like I feel like it's almost it's almost scarier when you know a lot of the the book knowledge, like the science of how avalanches happen, or um, if you go to Knowles and get a wilderness first aid training. Um, it, it's almost scarier for the first few months because you you have all of these thoughts bouncing around in your head and you have all these facts and statistics. Um, but then the more you get out into the, into the wilderness, the more you can kind of mitigate risks by using the knowledge rather than having the knowledge work against you. And one uh, problem people probably imagine is about animal life. And I was curious what run-ins you might have had and what advice you have for people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, one of my first solo backpacking trips in Sequoia National Park, actually, um, I ran into three bears in the space of 36 hours, and I was totally alone. <laughs> the craziest one was... Um, I was just walking quietly and I hadn't seen anyone for over a mile and a bear ran like 15 feet in front of me in a trail on trail. I mean, <laughs> and, um, the bear like stopped about 20 or 25 feet away, just off trail and like turned around and looked at me and was looking a little bit uneasy. Um, and a little bit scared of me, which was surprising because this bear was like three times as big as I am. And, um, I'm wondering if I maybe got between the bear and it's it's young without realizing it because it was kind of protecting these, this bush area. Um, so that was definitely pretty pretty scary. But then I, I kept – I'm really proud of myself for not running um, because I think everything in my body wanted to run. But I, I'm really proud of myself for somehow magically pulling it together enough to just casually maintain eye contact with the bear and keep walking forward. And then I didn't see anyone else on trail for – like at least a mile and a half after that. So I feel like if if that situation had gone poorly, there there wouldn't have really been anyone nearby for a while. I feel like other other notable moments are like seeing little glimpses of foxes as they kind of shuffle into a bush or seeing um I've had a, a bunch of really cool raven encounters in Yosemite. Um there's also a lot of deer in Sequoia and Yosemite that are just completely not afraid of people. So they'll almost walk right up to you on trail. Um, I literally had to shoo deer out of my camp 
because I was scared they were going to eat my food once um, at Hamilton Lake. And uh, there were a lot of magical moments when I was just in Nepal, actually, with um, like hundreds of ravens and crows circling overhead and creating these really amazing flight formations. Wow. That sounds great. I mean, that must be one of the most fascinating parts about it is that kind of connection to nature. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny because you can never expect them to happen. And honestly, I've found that the animal encounters will happen much more frequently when you're backpacking solo. Um, I'm guessing because you don't talk as much, so you're walking quietly. And perhaps they're not as put off by a quiet person that's, you know, the same size as they are. <laughs> Can you talk about the the mental training it takes for that amount of alone time when you're out there by yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because um, my third ever backpacking trip was a solo trip. Um, so I think I'm a little bit of a weird person to ask this question to. But I um, I grew up as an only child, so I had a lot of alone time as a kid, which I think really helped spark my imagination. Um, but honestly, like being out on the trail, I think one of the best times to choose to do a solo backpacking trip is when your mind is chewing on something like a breakup or maybe an issue at work or, or like a recent death in your close circle. I think that there are these moments where these, these difficult choices or these difficult junctions kind of come to you in life. And I think that having that space where you're not in a city, you're not surrounded by things that are creations of man or the ideas of man, and you have all this silence to simply just walk and then occasionally set up camp and do chores. And um, I think that it's really crucial as a person to to give yourself those moments. So I, I would say that I haven't done a lot of mental training for my solo hikes because I think pretty much every solo hike I've go I've gone on I really needed for sanity reasons. So the training didn't seem quite as necessary. Um and then also a friend gifted me a Kindle recently and that was pretty life-changing <laughs> because if I if I do need entertainment I can have like 20 books ready to go. That's nice. Any favorites lately? Um, yes. I just reread Wild, which was really cool to reread and pay attention to structure and um, her descriptive writing more. And I just read, I read a bunch of books in Nepal. Um, I just read Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology. And I also just finished Aldous Huxley's The Island. Oh, that is a, that's a favorite. That's still the best blueprint of a psychedelic society I think I've ever seen. Yes, exactly. I I basically, the whole time I was reading the book, I was like, he, I think he just did psychedelics and wanted to answer the question, what would happen if everyone did? <laughs> he said it was his hardest book to write because it was just supposed to be a happy world and it's really hard to write happy. Yeah, the book almost came across more philosophical than storytelling at times. But it, once I kind of accepted that and accepted that it wasn't going to be like an emotional roller coaster, uh, I really enjoyed going through that world with him. That's cool. <laughs> um, so you mentioned Nepal. Um, where have been some of your favorite places that you've been uh, able to travel to? Um, I feel like I've been on a roll lately, honestly. Um, last year, 
my mom wanted to take me to Machu Picchu for my birthday. And I told her I didn't want to go unless she would hike the Inca Trail with me. And she had never been backpacking before. So that was definitely out of her comfort zone, but a really cool, relatively easy mother-daughter trip. Um, because you have porters and there are people who cook for you every night. So it's it's like very plush, glamping style backpacking. Um, and then earlier this year, I went to Ecuador, which was really amazing, um, especially since Cotopaxi has now been deemed safe to climb again. So we did a little hike up to the glacier, um, my friends and I, one of the days. And um, we also did this amazing backpacking loop called the Kilatoa Loop that traverses around the the mountains in Ecuador and finishes at around 13,000 feet overlooking this volcanic crater that's now this beautiful sapphire lake. Um, so that was really cool. And then I was most recently in Nepal, and Nepal was totally magical, and I'm still honestly um, processing everything that happened, and I'm excited to eventually write about it and get get all the thoughts down. And hopefully by the time this uh, show comes out, you'll have some of that on your website. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I posted, I posted one of my first Nepal images um, recently on Instagram and I should be continuing that saga via social media. And then in a week or two, I aim to have at least one, if not two pieces of writing up on my website. Um, that are a little more long form. Great. And we'll have links to all of the social media in the episode notes for anyone who wants to follow along with the adventures. Um, and just to go back a little bit, uh, why was the mountain deemed unsafe, the one that you mentioned? Oh, yeah. Um, I believe a few years ago, like maybe maybe three years ago, um, Cotopaxi was erupting. So it wasn't safe for climbing because half of the mountain was covered in lava. If you look at pictures now, the recent photos, you can kind of see the glacier no longer goes perfectly around the mountain. Um, It is now uh, melted or a bit charred on one side. So that was really fascinating to see up close. And in going all these places by yourself all over the world, uh, and in your writing, you talk about being a female adventurer and the unique challenges that can come with that um, out on your own. Do you have any advice for others who might want to be doing a similar path? I would say don't let your fears dictate your choices. And I would say that if your gut is telling you that you should be climbing or out in the mountains, even if that's alone, it's never going to be as scary or as hard or as as tricky as you think it's going to be if your gut is like really telling you to go for it. Um, it's been my experience that every time, every time I think I'm going to be totally freaked out on a trip or totally out of my level on, um, a peak that I'm, I'm climbing, our bodies have this amazing ability to rise to the occasion. So I would say, trust that and don't trust what your friends tell you about bears and rattlesnakes (laughs) because they're not as big of a threat (laughs) as you think. And if you're afraid to go alone, which I've heard a lot of people say because they can't, they can't find a friend to go with. And so they think their only option is going alone and they're a little scared to do it. I would say try to find meetups in your area or um, see if the Sierra Club has a local chapter or something like that so that you can 
kind of ally yourself with people who are a bit more experienced first uh, before you go off on your own adventure or maybe even start trip leading for your friends once you get your skills higher and you feel more confident. What's been some of your favorite advice that you've received from other people along your travels about how to do this? I would say some of my best advice came from my friend Goran, who's a really badass mountaineer in Colorado. Um, I was having a really tough time because in 2017, I was dating a climbing partner and he was a lot more fit than I was. So I had to go through all of the humbling ego obliteration of being not the best or not the fastest hiker anymore. Um, pretty much every time I went out, which was almost every weekend last year. And, um, I was getting really down on myself and, um, having kind of a bad time mentally. And my friend Goran sent me this really sweet email and said, um, don't ever forget you climb for yourself. You don't climb for anyone else. So if you need to remind yourself, you can even like yell it out loud. I climb for me. (laughs) And, um, he also suggested more from a training perspective, um, like try not to get too obsessive about the numbers, but get your heart rate up and get it up for at least 30 minutes a couple of times a week if you want to get faster. Also, don't be ashamed of turning back on a climb. Like it's okay to turn back on a climb if conditions change or something's sketchy or you know that you're so tired that you're not going to be able to get back safely. Um, But be mindful of not turning around on a climb just because you're scared or not turning around before you even start the climb if conditions are otherwise good. And that's a really hard one to follow because sometimes, sometimes your nerves get the best of you. And I've definitely stopped a few climbs before they even really started. Speaking of your basics of backpacking advice, um, when people are buying gear and clothing, what do you think are the most important things to be focusing on and to make sure you get correct? Oh, wow. This is like the best question for me right now because I've, um, I've been deep in gear reviewing land and writing about this kind of stuff for the last two months, I would say. Um, when it comes to clothing, I would say really pay attention to the fabrics. Um, there are benefits to wool and synthetic, just like there are benefits to down versus synthetic. Um, I would say that, um, spending the money to get a decent quality piece of gear the first time around is always worth it because especially in the outdoor industry, a lot of the top brands will offer like a satisfaction guarantee or a lifetime guarantee where, If something breaks, even if it breaks like five years after you get it and you've used it a bunch, a lot of the top companies will totally just replace it for you if you mail it in and it's clear that you didn't like throw it in a fire. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I would say I know it's, I know it's a little hard on the wallet, um, to have that initial several pieces of gear purchase when you're starting out, but it, it does get better and then you'll have that gear for at least 10 years. And, um, I would say in terms of clothing, I'm a big fan of down instead of synthetic, actually for sleeping bags too, because it's the most compressible and it's the warmest and it's the lightest weight. So all of those things are really great if you want to keep your pack weight down and your pack size small. Um, 
it is a little bit tricky in terms of waterproofing, but it um, a lot of the, the companies are now coating their down in these hydrophobic um, treatments that make sure that it, at, at the very least, like it's not going to completely keep like it's not going to completely leave you cold if there's tent condensation or something, which happens quite frequently. Um, in terms of like base layers, I'm a big fan of wool because wool insulates really well, even if it's wet. Um, and it's naturally odor resistant. It's naturally like it, it doesn't, it's antimicrobial. So it's not going to, it's not going to get gross if you're on a multi-day or like a multi-week long trip. Um, and then I would say like for, for outer shells and pants, I love, um, I have a bit of an addiction to fancy hiking pants. So, um, the, the ones that come in the synthetic material that's quick dry and wind resistant, I would highly recommend looking for something in that realm. And if you know that you live somewhere that is frequently rainy, or you're going to be summiting peaks and it's going to be, you know, 40 mile an hour winds on occasion, it's definitely worth investing in a great shell to top everything off. Uh, it must be fun to be at the position now where you can be reviewing all of the new gear coming out because it must be fascinating to see all of the technological innovations happening. Yeah, it, it really is cool. And it's another thing that's been fascinating is, is seeing how so many of the companies use almost the exact same fabrics. But the features that they choose to include or not include, or also just the way they design something but using the same exact fabric, that's been really fascinating as well. Um, because a company might be prioritizing, um, you know, like flexibility in the shoulder region for something that's intended for climbing. Or I just reviewed a ton of sleeping bags, and some of them are prioritizing a wider fit because they know that not everyone sleeps on their back. Um, but that does add weight because it's wider. So yeah, it's really, it's been really cool to, to get to hone in on those little details and see exactly what you're spending your money on and then hopefully convey that information to, to consumers so that they can be more empowered. What would your advice be to someone who wants to plan their first big trip? They've been training, they've been out in their local region, but they want to go abroad or to the other side of the country for the first time. Um, what's your first advice on planning a trip like that? Like a backpacking trip? Uh, yes. Okay. I would say definitely download a good GPS app for your phone because that's going to work. Um, that's going to work using GPS and you're not going to need Wi-Fi. So I think I spent about 20 bucks or something to get Gaia GPS, which is a lot of people's favorite. Um, and that works all over the world. It's better in the States because there's more trail information. But um, in a pinch, you could download an area of Ecuador, for example. and generally follow along your little, you know, your little like red dot of where your body is. Um, so I would say do that as a backup. I would say Google as much as you can. Um, sometimes a random blog that's not even on the first page of Google will have a really amazing turn by turn of, of a tricky part of the trail with photos. Um, or they might've even you know, made their own little trail map with their GPS, which is different than your GPS, and that might be more detailed. Um, so I would say collect as much information as you can on Google. Um, you could even screenshot it onto your phone so that you have it available offline, um, especially if there's a map 
or um, a, a trail junction that you want to make sure you don't forget. Double and triple check weather conditions because they can shift really quickly. When in doubt, a lot of times in other countries, even just for hiking, even if you're not mountaineering, you can hire a guide and it's not even that expensive um, unless you're in the Alps or something. I would I would figure that when all else fails, getting a guide for at least the first few might be worth it and you could learn a ton. Um, and then also, I guess, if you're really interested in learning the kind of old school map and compass style skills, REI and a lot of other outdoor stores and organizations offer like map and compass classes. So if you wanted to actually print out a paper map and figure out waypoints and triangulate that way when you're on the trail, um, that's that's kind of the old school way of doing it. But um, definitely more foolproof because you're not going to run out of batteries. That's great. It's great to hear old school advice like that about how to really take care of it without all the fancy electronics. Yeah. And actually, like, I probably need to practice a little more. Like, next summer backpacking season, I feel like I should get back out and, and practice my waypoints because I've been a little too GPS heavy lately. <laughs> and so, the last question I wanted to ask was if we could sponsor you out there on the trail for a year uh, and climbing the mountains, where would you want to go the most? Oh, wow. That is quite a big question. Um, I I have a few kind of budding desires in terms of if I had a year off and money was no object. Um, Chile just opened a trail that goes from the Andes Mountains to Patagonia. And that sounds really amazing. It's about the length of the Pacific Crest Trail. And I feel like I would get really awesome at Spanish <laughs> if I did it. So that's a pro. And I also just seeing all the different terrain because I love the Andes Mountains and I've never been to Patagonia and I speak decent enough Spanish to know that I'm not going to get myself killed, I think. <laughs> so um, that one, when I heard about it earlier this year that it just opened, that really piqued my interest because not a lot of people have done it yet. Um, another one that is that I've heard amazing things about is the Te Araroa Trail in New Zealand, which is also, I think, about the length of the Pacific Crest Trail, but way less famous. Um, it it was first I was first introduced to it by Anna McNuff, who is an incredible female adventurer. Um, and she did it solo and trail ran most of it, which I think is so badass. But taking the time to actually do it you know, in five or six months instead of three would be really incredible because the, the landscape is just so immense and varied in New Zealand as well. Um, so th yeah, those are two that, those are two that seem really interesting to me right now. I'm, I'm also, I'm peeking at Switzerland because I haven't been back since I was like 21 years old. And there are some really cool, like one or two week treks there. But if I had a whole year, I feel like I would, I would need to go big. <laughs> well we'd love to see it um, and so if anybody wants to follow along it's brazenbackpacker.com and if you like Emily's work you can also support her on Patreon and we'll put that link in the episode notes Emily thank you so much for taking the time to, to tell us all about your adventures yeah thank you so much for having me this was fun alright until next time alright later happy trails Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. 
but per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day.